All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, and I'm your host, and today it's episode 13. Now, for episode 13, we're going to talk all about lobsters and the history of the lobster industry. My guest on the show with me today is Captain Tim Handrigan, and he is known as the Lobster Guy. He has a lot of experience in the industry. He's grown up in the industry, and he's going to share some of those insights on what it was like to grow up in the industry and also some history behind lobster. Before I get to that, my main mission here at the Toasty Kettle Podcast is to share my passion for food and food history with everyone. And the one way you all could help with that is to take a minute and share your favorite episode or something you've learned from the show with someone that you know who likes podcasts. You know, we all know that one person that's always looking for another podcast to listen to. And uh, that'd be a good moment, a good opportunity to mention our show. And I definitely appreciate that when, when you do that. Now, with that out of the way, we'll dive right into the interview with Captain Tim. Hey, good afternoon, James of the Toasty Kettle. This is Captain Tim Handrigan from the Lobster Guy. How you doing? Great, great. I'm glad to have you on the show today. And um, glad to be here. Yeah, that's good. It's good to have you. So let's dive in a little bit more into lobster, being a lobsterman. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the history behind lobstermen? Yeah, sure. Uh you know, they've been catching lobsters back, you know, I think the earliest notation of lobsters is back when the pilgrims landed, actually. And they were so numerous and so plentiful that they used to actually pluck them off the beach and use them for fertilizer in their gardens when they first came to America. You know, the, the, I guess lobsters were also served on for Thanksgiving dinner. It, it's it's pretty neat. I mean, they I guess at low tide you could you could walk the beach back in those days and just pick them pick them up right by your hands and as I said the pilgrims would grind them up and make a compost out of them and put them in their gardens in the spring and th- that sounds crazy but it's true you now who would have who would ever thunk you know yeah yeah I, I think that's a Thanksgiving dinner I can really get behind personally yeah absolutely hey you know what we do lobsters become really popular at Thanksgiving I mean I'm still a turkey guy but we do uh we move a lot for thanksgiving you'd be surprised you know but over the years it's evolved um you know where i am where i fish they you know they found lobsters in the deep water years ago going back to the 60s and it was actually the draggermen guys that were dragging the nets for fish that found them in the deep water and it was back then it was an untapped resource you know so guys started trapping them and and you know catching them by you know trapping them with pots and uh it's just evolved. It's evolved from there, you know. Uh, it's uh, it's quite a unique business, you know. It's it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sacrifice. A lot of hours go into this. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, you know. You, you I mean, for for what I've done, I fished offshore for 36 years. Um, on the the last boat I owned, the Courtney Elizabeth, uh, was, was 89 feet long. And, uh, you know, we'd be going three or four or five days at a time. So you missed out on a lot of stuff. You missed out on a lot of birthdays, celebrations. Uh, one, even one year, years back, we were towed home. We didn't get in, get home until the day after Christmas. We missed Christmas. We were on the end of a tow hook. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it, it can be rewarding. Uh, there's nothing like seeing a sunset, you know, offshore with nothing around when you're 200 miles away. Um, you see some of the most incredible things you've ever seen, you know, whales and uh, the birds, just the weather alone. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty crazy lifestyle, you know, but if you, if you keep your nose to it and you put up with the good with the bad, it can be pretty rewarding, you know? Yeah. It's, it's always good to do something that you love and, and to find those little things around that, uh, that, that make it all worth it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it, it it's, it's been great for me. I mean, I've worked hard at it. Um, put put a lot of time into it you know my my uncles did it my dad did it um and i just kept it going and kept plugging at it and i got into it at a young age and you know my family started in the seafood business when i was really really young i think i was i was picking lobster meat on the docks from my dad and my uncle when i was about six. Oh, really and, uh, 
used to stand there. Yeah, I used to stand on a wooden crate. Back then, they used to pack all the fish in, in wooden boxes. You know, they didn't have plastic boxes and plastic totes and wax boxes back then. And I was I was a short little, well, I was a little kid. I wouldn't say short, but, but I put my dad's hip boots as waders on, and they'd, they'd come up to... They'd come up to just about my waist, about five sizes too big for me, and I'd stand there and pick lobster meat all day, and and uh, that was that was my start in it, you know. But the the smell the smell of the salt air every morning was just it was just too much to stay away from, you know. It was just uh, it, it's been a good life, it's been a hard life, but you know I wouldn't change it for an office job. I'd, I'd never do it. I'd, if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. Right now, sometimes growing up. We, we don't always have the same perspective that our parents do. So when you're standing on the dock picking lobster meat, did, did you enjoy that growing up? Did, is that something that really stood out to you at that time, or did you grow to love I it? I wanted so to be to a fighter pilot. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what I wanted to do, either that or a baseball player like every other kid, you know, but Right. I mean, it was, I, I just wanted to be with my dad. I wanted to spend time with my dad, and my uncle, and that's, that's what they did. And I was always captivated by the boats, you know, and, and, and how they worked, how they operated. And I mean, I think, you know, I was born with salt water in my veins. So it's just, uh, you know, going through high school, like I said, I wanted to, I wanted to fly jets for the Navy is what I wanted. To, that's what I really wanted to do. But you know, you get out of school at 14, 15 years old and, and you go fishing after school, you know, you went fishing in the summer and it just became a way of life. And, you know, when you're young and things are going well and you're making a couple of bucks, all of a sudden you've got, you've got all the answers at 15, 16 years old and you're not going to do anything else. So, I mean, there was a time later on, you know, in my mid twenties, I look back and I'm like, geez, this is, I didn't go out and see the world. I didn't go out and do the things I really wanted to do. But uh, on the other hand, how many people get to climb on a boat and, and steam offshore a couple hundred miles and, and, and become really good at your craft and work really hard and maintain your equipment and, and, and learn to hunt lobsters. I mean, it's not just like setting traps in the ocean and, and just twiddling your thumbs and waiting. I mean, there's a lot of work and, and finding out where they're going and, and where they're going to, what they call pop out of the mud after they shed. Where where are they going to be? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of guesswork, a lot of trial and error, and and you know I I'm not being cocky, but I, I put my time in, and I'm proud to say I was really 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 good at it. it. It took a long time. It wasn't always perfect. Um, you know, you'd have you'd have trips where you where you'd come in after four or five days, and you barely caught enough to make expenses. You know, and and this day and age of 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 expenses and diesel fuel, you know, we all look around the country and you look at the price of fuel. You know, these boats burn 30, 40 gallons an hour, you know, to run these engines, you know, and you get up to $3, $3.50 $3. a gallon. I mean, you can do the math. It's in, in the cost of bait alone. I mean, the cost of bait's $150 a barrel, you know, and you put 30 barrels of bait on the boat. And then you got groceries, you've got maintenance, insurance. It's, it's an expensive proposition to get into, but it can be it can be really rewarding if you put your time in and you work hard and and you don't give up. Right, definitely not something for for the faint of heart. Not a not a get rich quick scheme, right? No, no, not at all. There's a lot of expense. I mean, nowadays, you know, a lobster trap now, you know, for for offshore fishing, a lobster trap now, just a trap alone before you put the rope to it and. And, and put the escape vents in it for small lobster. So, uh, you, you're looking at 125 dollars a piece, you know. And you add rope to that, buoys, maintenance, and loss. I mean, yeah, it's 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 an expensive business. And you know, people look at the price of lobsters sometimes, and I'll get phone calls and say, "Well, geez, you know, I can go down to the local supermarket and I can get them for you know for this amount, which is a lot cheaper than than what you're selling them for, or your competitors are selling them for." And, you know, a lot of that comes from a lot of lobsters nowadays are coming out of Canada, and they've got they've got different regulations up there. They're allowed to sell a smaller lobster and a lobster mm-hmm. that isn't perfectly hardened. You know, they're not going to come out and advertise that that like, geez, you know, we've got lobsters on sale for seven ninety nine a pound, but they're not going to tell you that they're rejects and that they're a smaller size that 
we're allowed to keep and harvest and sell. So there's there's a lot to it, you know. Right, right. Well, so because this is a business you've been in your whole life, how has it changed over the years? You know, you've you've seen quite uh, a good chunk of that. How how has that changed? Well, I mean, when I started out, and like I said, I started out picking lobster meat from my dad and my uncle on the docks, you know, and I learned to grade them and handle them. And I just, I itched to get on the boats and that's where I ended up. And I worked my way up from a, you know, from a deckhand, you know, to eventually being a captain at a young age. But back in the day, I mean, I think it's the same for all fisheries around the country is that if you wanted to get a job on a boat in the port, I mean, you went and did what they call shore work. You went and did the work while the boat was at the dock or the boat was in the shipyard. And I remember in the spring going over to the shipyards when the boats would haul out, you know, to paint their bottoms and sandblast and the wooden boats replace planking. You'd go over and, and work on these boats for free. I mean, if the captain bought you lunch, I mean, that was a plus. But you, you went into it, you know, to show them that you were willing to work and that you wanted a job. But there were, there were 10 or 12 other kids like me that wanted to do it, that were lined up pushing for that job because they, especially the good boats, the boats with a good captain, you know, that had a good history of making money. And you fast forward to today, and it's, it's just changed so much, James, that there's not a lot of people looking to get into the business of, of lobstering or fishing, per se, for what it is and what it represents. A lot of people look at it, is a quick buck, you know, and I'm going to get on this boat and I'm going to make this much money and I'm going to do this. And they don't want to learn the intricacies of, of fixing twine and fixing traps and learning how to splice rope and learning how to tie that, that 15 to 20 knots that are needed and taking a watch and having respect and care for the boat. A lot of that's just gone away and it's, it's kind of sad, you know, it's just, it's just really changed so much that, you know, it, it's kind of sad in a way, you know, you don't see, I guess what I'm getting at is you don't see a lot of young people coming into this business anymore um, that, that want to make a living out of it. They look at it as a quick buck. And if they don't make a quick buck, then they move from one boat to the other. There's not a lot of loyalty with it anymore. I mean, not to say that there aren't guys that are, but it's just, it's just really changed with the times, you know, and it's uh, kind of sad to see that. Yeah. Kind of uh, people, losing their passion for it in a sense or not having that, that passion for it where it's more about the dollars and cents than, you know, like you described the whole experience of picking lobster meat on the dock and then itching to get on a boat and then doing anything it took, even if you were working for free to make it out there on the boats and with a good captain and getting the education, not just getting a paycheck. Exactly. And it's, that's what it was. That, that was everything to us when we were, we were growing up and getting into it. I mean, you know, you'd look at a boat that was, you know, that was maintained and well painted. And I mean, everything was stowed away correctly. And, and you know, the guys had their stuff together. That's where you wanted to be. That's where you wanted to work and, and be part of that. You know, you wanted, there was a ton of pride in it back then. I mean, it was just, and I carried that forward in the way I am and the way I ran my boats and, I mean, my boats were always immaculate. They were always maintained, oils, oil changes and maintenance and, and paint. And, I mean, I go back a few years ago, and the last boat I built, uh, the Courtney Elizabeth, was built in 1987 in, in Battery, Alabama, uh, where Forrest Gump was filmed. And I was, oh, I was so proud to build that boat at a young age and, and bring it up here. I was in my early 20s, and we steamed out of Biola Battery up through the river with no navigation buoys. There were just muds. There were sticks in the mud for navigation. And we brought the boat back up here. It took us seven and a half days to get home. But, you know, you know, the investment that it took to get to that point and the risk it took to go to a bank and say, yeah, I want to do this at such a young age. And my dad standing behind me to help me do it. Um, and now you look at it now and these guys are just, you know, we used to have a day on the boat just for paint. You know, one day a month or one day every two weeks, we'd touch up the paint on the boat, we'd sand and remove the rail. And it was a pride issue. And you don't, you don't see that anymore. You know, oh, we got gear work today. We've got to work on traps. Well, guys didn't care about that. They just wanted their paycheck. And it just, 
it's just changed a lot. You know, I wish it was the same. I'd love to see a ton of young people get into this. But, you know, on the other hand of it, there's a lot of regulation now with the government. The government's involved with sizing and what you catch and what you can keep. And, you know, that's for another day and another story. But that's uh, that makes it difficult as well. Right. Do you, would you say those are all barriers for people really getting into it now than, you know, yeah, it, it, they are some barriers, and you know, and, and there's a stigma put on fishermen that fishermen want to go out and they want to catch every last lobster and every last flounder and every last swordfish, and you know that's the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, I, you know, we want to harvest sustainably, and yeah, sure, I want to go out and catch a ton of lobsters all the time, but you know, I, that's why we throw, that's why we have measures, and we throw the small ones back, and we throw the really soft ones back, and the eggers back, you know, because I, I want to. We have a habit on the boat, too. I mean, the the last trap that comes up at the end of the trip, we always throw the last legal lobster back in the water. And, you know, it's kind of like a sign of good luck or goodwill. And, you know, you don't want to take them all. But you you want to take you want to catch as many as you can, but you want to leave something for tomorrow and for the next generation as well. Right, right. Obviously, you got to stay in business and pay your bills. But at the end of the day, you're not helping yourself if you're <laughs> sucking the ocean dry, right? No, exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, any good fisherman worth the salt isn't going to do that or want to do that. You know, it's not about taking as much as you can and screw tomorrow. That's just, that's that's not the way I'd say 99% of us think. You know, I mean, you want to harvest this uh, sustainably and you want it to be there for tomorrow and for next generations, you know. Like I said, doesn't mean you don't want to catch as, as many as you can. The more you catch, the more you make, you know, but... It, like I said, in this day and age, too, the expenses are so outrageous. It, it's so expensive for me to leave the dock a couple of years ago with, with a big boat. I mean, just on before I threw the lines off and left the dock, the the expenses were seven, eight thousand dollars in bait, fuel, you know, food, uh, supplies, and everything. So I mean, you get you're up against it before before you leave the dock. There's no guarantee, and that's why they call it fishing and not farming. You know, no offense mm-hmm. to farmers, of course. So with the industry seeing a lot of changes over the years with different regulations and, you know, people that will come and go, um, have the lobsters changed over the years or has that remained fairly constant? Well, you know, James, every year is different in fishing. You know, some years are a boon year. Uh, sometimes you catch lobsters in depths in places that you normally wouldn't. Um, like last, last year was a really, really good year all the way from, Newfoundland down past to New Jersey, you know, it was, it was a great year offshore, um, inshore Maine. It was, it was a great year. Um, I don't know. They say climate change has an effect. Uh, you know, water temperature has an effect and I'm a big believer that the water temperature does have an effect, but you've got to remember like where I fish in the deep water, you know, you're talking a hundred fathoms, 200 fathoms of water. It's 1200 feet, you know, that's 1200 feet deep. That's, that's pretty deep. Um, the water temperature on the bottom is almost a constant, but you know, what I've been told and what I've learned over the years, even one or two or three degrees on the bottom does make a big difference. I mean, it does have an effect on how they move, you know, how they crawl when they shed. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess you could say it's, it's changed a little bit, you know? So when did, when did lobsters go from being this ingredient that you could pick up anywhere on the beach and it was more, you know, from research I had done, uh, you know, many years ago it was a, it was poor man's food. It was what you would just go pick up and eat. And now it's like this super expensive, super pricey, or at least it has that stigma that it's super pricey, uh, ingredient. When did, when did that change happen? Well, I, I guess in pot, you know, they became more popular, you know, and I remember I, I seen signs that my dad and my uncle had that, you know, showing me signs that, uh, from flyers in the paper, you know, lobsters, 59 cents a pound, uh, steamer clams, 10 cents a pound, you know, cra- crabs, five cents a pound. And, you know, that was in the, that was in the early sixties, you know, and I, I think, I, I think it, you know, it becomes supply and demand. I mean, a lot, a lot of lobs, lobsters are now shipped worldwide. I mean, we ship, mm-hmm. you know, we ship in the United States every day, right to your door. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of other businesses are shipping to China. Uh, China has become huge. They they have a ferocious appetite for lobsters. Um, so many lobsters go to go to the Asian market. Um, but I guess that over time, 
over time, things have increased, and a lot of it is supply and demand. And like I said the uh, previously, you know, the expenses are high on it uh, to catch them. And it's not like you just go out and it doesn't cost you anything to catch them. So I think over time, it's it's just uh, it's got more expensive to catch them. Obviously, you know, insurance is higher. Like I said, expenses are higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of it's just supply and demand. But to catch a lobster now, if, for example, this year, right now, today, prices are really high on lobsters to the boat. It's it's they're not catching a lot. Um, um, and it's going to be one of those things. It's going to be after Labor Day that the light switch is going to come on, and everybody's going to catch all at once. And a lot of the summer market will be over. You know, a lot of the tourist market will be over. People are back in school. Uh, kids are back in school, and people are getting back into their into their fall routine. So. Um, a lot of it's driven by by supply and demand right now. So you know, prices are they are high. There's not a lot of hard quality lobsters coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, but if people want them and they need them, then they're available. They're just costing a little bit more money, you know. But I'm trying to give you to a background of what it what it takes and what it costs. So you know, it's 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 not a cheap business to get into. Right, and uh, definitely a lot goes into it, and ultimately that's going to influence the uh, the the outcome, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, everybody's everybody. You know, you can't do this for free. You, I mean, nobody mm-hmm. runs a business for free. Um, there's a there's, there's there's just a lot of moving parts to it, you know. And I mean, you know, the quality of lobsters. I I mean, you, we had a boat in this morning that had he was out he was out four days and. I mean, the catch is slow where him and a bunch of the other boats are working on the continental shelf. And he had a couple thousand pounds, which isn't a lot for this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you back up and you go by the expenses of the fuel and the bait and everything else that went, I mean, he didn't make a lot of money. I mean, prices are high, but the quality of the lobsters is, is so, so at best right now. There's a lot of soft shells, a lot of shedders mixed in. So the premium stuff that you're looking for to ship, you know, the hard shells that that ship well, that, that ship lively. And, you know, we're very particular about what we, what we can pack is, you know, it's just not, there's not a lot of that around right now. There's enough to, to cover what we need, but, um, you know, that, that translates to a higher price. Right. From a whole career, you know, as a, as a fisherman, as a lobsterman, do you have a, a favorite story or two that, that stand out that you can share? Sure. Uh, well, for, for base, baseball fans, when I was I was young, I was picking meat one day for my dad, and uh, down here in the port, they used to hold a tuna tournament every September, and tons of people would come down here. And this is back with you know, 90% of the boats back then were wood, you know, that and the sport boats would go tuna fishing. And I was picking meat in the back room one day as a kid, and, and uh, my uncle comes walking in, and he he's got a bag with four two-pound lobsters on it. I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And uh, my dad and my uncle always called me Boy. Uh, that was my nickname. Hey, Boy. It wasn't Timmy. It wasn't Tim. It was, hey, Boy, for whatever reason. And uh, I looked up and he said, hey, can you split these for stuffing? So what you do is you take a knife and you split the lobsters and clean them out. But some of it's going to go home and make baked stuff lobster. So I get the knife and I put them on the cutting board and I clean them up and I take the guts and everything out and I put them in the bag and rinse them out and I put them back in the bag and this, this man comes into the picking room at the back of the fish market, this big tall guy with my uncle. And he says, hey, you did a really good job for me there. Here's a tip. So the gentleman gave me five bucks and I remember looking up at him and I was young and I don't remember the exact age, but I remember looking up and he was this big, big tall guy. I mean, he, he just stood out and he gave me a five dollar tip and he took his hand and he tussled my hair a little bit and he said, you did a nice job for me. I'll see you soon. And he walked away. And the name of that gentleman was Ted Williams. Oh, really? Yep. Yep. And he used to come down for the tuna tournament. And he'd kind of hang out with my uncle and a couple other guys. They became friends over the years. And he came down. He loved the tuna fish. And he came in the back room and he gave me a $5 tip. And I didn't know he had signed the bill. And he wasn't, my dad had told me later on that, you know, Ted's not big on signing autographs, but he said, what'd you do with that $5 bill? And a look of horror went across my face. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, would you give me that $5 bill? I'll go put it aside for you. You keep that. Well, the minute Mr. Williams had given me the $5 bill, not knowing that he had signed it, I ran across to the little grocery store and bought fudgicles with it. <laughs> so, How old were you my that father went chasing, Oh, I was probably 8, 9, 10 years old. So my father went chasing over to the local little grocery store there in the point and 
lo and behold, the five dollar bill was long gone. So oh yeah, I didn't sure hear I didn't hear the end of that for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I did end up getting a baseball autograph by him a couple of years later, so it was all good. But my father was kind of shocked. He said, "Did you even look at it?" I was like, "No, it was, it was a five dollar bill, and they got fungicles across the street." So that's what I went and did with it. You know, but I mean, growing up in the port, I mean, I you know, I mean. As far as stories go, I mean, you've seen we've seen a, you see a lot of a lot of great stuff. I mean, that some of the wildlife you see along the the whales and you know, uh, flat calm sea, you know, like flat flat calm. We call them mill pond. You know, it's just flat, not a ripple. And watching the sun come up at four thirty in the morning with absolutely nothing around, and you you sit there and you say, man, how many people can see this? You know, uh, looking up one night when the space shuttle was launching it was doing a northerly trajectory that's one of the coolest things we've ever seen is you know we knew what time it was going off and we were 200 miles offshore so we shut all the lights out and we were listening to the launch on the radio and we shut all the lights out and the, the shuttle came screaming over us you know it was, it was pretty high up obviously but it was it was pretty cool to see at night i mean it amazing how fast that thing traveled but it, that was cool um we saw a missile launch once a uh, submarine launch a missile about 200 yards away from us one night and that scared the bejesus out of us so uh you <laughs> don't get that. to see that every day <laughs> you know? um so all the tall ships one year back in back in i think it was 1990 all the tall ships from all over the country and I, i'm sure you're familiar with that um you, everybody has seen them but there was a whole parade of 20 of them and they came right up through the fishing grounds heading towards newport uh rhode island and and that was uh that was quite a sight to be seen. They let us get right in amongst them, and we stopped working for a little bit, and we kind of jogged along with them at slow speed, and we took some really, really great pictures here, which I have in my office to this day. Um, you know, I mean, the weather. I mean, we've seen – I've seen everything from flat calm to 100-mile-an-hour winds. It, you know, sometimes the weather get a little bit dicey, and you kind of want to kick yourself in your butt and say, why did I stay out here 200 miles away when it's blowing 90, 100 miles an hour for three days, you know, and you can't work. But, you know, it's 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 definitely a different life, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So in, in bad weather, when the storms kick up, is that something that ever worries you when you're out? Or do you kind of stay calm and, and handle it? Well, I, 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 I was never really fearful of the weather. I was smart with it. Um, you know, in the winter, we get a lot of Northwest wind up here on the backside of storms. You know, you get Northeast, you everybody's heard of Northeasters. And then usually on the backside of the storm, you get a lot of cold Northwest wind. And, you know, if the forecast was off a little bit and you were halfway through a trip, you could turn around and pound your way home for 12 or 15 hours into a northerly breeze. Or you could sit there and say, you know, this backside of the storm's going to blow through in 12 to 14 hours. So you can stick it out and kind of what you call jog around. You kind of stick it out, jog into the seas, keep the keep the boat stable. And instead of coming all the way home, burning the fuel to come all the way in, they have to turn around and go right back out. So, you know, but sometimes the 12-hour wait turned into a two-day wait. So, that, you know, it wasn't overly popular with the wives and families back at home, you know. Right. On on your website, you have a recipe for Captain Tim's mom's lobster bisque. Do you have any yeah. particular memories with that recipe? Anything that stands uh, out that makes that yeah, special? Yeah, when we were when we were kids, I mean, my mom cooked a lot of stuff with lobsters. Uh, <laughs> a great great little story to tell you about the history of it. But when my dad was lobster, and when I was younger, and he. He didn't fish too, too much. He he worked in the wholesale end of it. He went fishing at times, but you know things were tough, you know, and they were tight. It wasn't. It always wasn't all, always gravy. And when things were tough, we got lobster salad. That's what we got. We got lobster salad, crab salad, uh, swordfish sandwiches. It sounds crazy, and people go, "Oh my God, how how tough is life when you get lobster salad?" But when you eat it like six days in a row at school when you're a kid, mm-hmm. but you know, it're like being a farmer. If you if you harvest an all corn, you eat a lot of corn. You know, and back then, that's that's what my dad did. That's what we got to eat. But it it got to the point at school that I would trade lobster salad for egg salad. I would trade it for peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, my teachers would line up on any given day to see in elementary school to see what we had in the lunch bag, the Hendrigan lunch bags. You know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I ate so much of it that it was. You know, it's funny. I still eat it every day. You know, we're picking meat and 
and doing this, that, and the other in the retail store. And I'm always walking by eating. I, I could eat it every day. Still do. I love it. But, but yeah, it, I, it got to a point where I was like, oh, not again. You know, I mean, can't, can't we have peanut butter and jelly? But it, my parents couldn't afford it. So my dad would bring fish and lobsters home, and that's that's what we got. Um, the lobster bisques used to make the same thing. You know, my dad would cook cheddars, and she would make she would make lobster bisque, and uh, that's what you got in the winter when you got home from school. And it was it was really really good. I mean, it never kind of got tired of that. You know, it was always a little bit different, but um, never got tired of eating that or, or chowder. Uh, she made a lot of chowder. Still makes chowder. Uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, it was kind of, kind of growing up with it. That's what that's what you got. Yeah, you know, I I'd be one of those people that's thinking, yeah, how bad can life be if all you're eating is lobster every day? But uh, but yeah, I think if you have it every day, then it, particularly as a kid, I mean, kids kids like to have what you know the peanut butter and and the jelly and and they want to have what the other kids are having, not just the lobster, but. Oh, I remember I, I used to plead to trade, trade it for bologna sandwiches or uh, deviled ham. There was one kid, he always brought Larry. Larry, you know, I can't remember his last name. He always had deviled ham. And I wanted to trade him all the time, and he didn't like lobster. But uh, there was always a teacher or a principal that was first in line ready to trade up and, and, and help you with your problem, so to speak. But it was that that's what it was. That's You know, it wasn't a high-end lifestyle. It's just that's what that's what my dad did. and. That's what they. That's the business they were in. So that's that's what you got when things were tight. You, you ate lobsters. You know, it sounds crazy. People probably shaking their head. Listen to this, but you know, it's it's kind of what we did. You know, you know, I mean, kids that grow up on a on a chicken ranch, they probably get they probably get chicken all the time. You know, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, what makes a good lobster? If if I'm if I'm if I'm in a fish market or at a store and I'm looking to get a lobster, what what makes a good lobster? How how can I tell? It's kind of hard to tell. Um, you know, you want a nice hard shell on it. Um, you know, a good live lobster is it, it, they're frisky. They move around a lot. That does change when you ship them. When you put them in the box, the colder you make a lobster, like for for example, a shipment. They'll become they'll become very still. Um, they they almost like seize up, you know. But if you're in a market, I mean, you pick them out of the tank. Uh, the water, the warmer is the lobster. The more it's going to move around. The colder a lobster is, the less it's going to move around. So we keep the lobsters here, and even in the in the retail tanks and in the uh, in the big pools in the back, we've got two giant pools. They're like swimming pools that the lobsters are stored in crates in. But we keep that water at 38 degrees, which is pretty. Think about it. That's pretty cold. But the lobsters like the colder the better. Um, they don't move around as much. That they, they don't bite it, bite each other. You know, even though they have bands on their claws, they they have eight little other arms that they can nip at or, or chew with. But the the colder they are, the better they are. Um, especially prior to shipment. So um, as far as size goes, um, you know, we we sell anything from pound and a quarter up to upwards of twelve pounds. You know, for a jumbo, but. Personally, my favorite size is a pound and three quarter to two lobster. Um, it's a great size. It, it's you know you, that that and a baked potato and an ear of corn. You in a in a in a piece of pie or a piece of dessert after that, and you you're fat and happy. <laughs> yeah, I can agree with that. Um, yeah. So so you know researching you and and your business a little bit for for this episode, you know you you definitely have a lot of great products online and and a lot of fantastic reviews where can people find you and and how can people order some of your lobsters oh they can they can find the website is called lobster guy um i've had that nickname for a, a long time hey timmy hey, hey lobster guy lobster guy i'm sure there's a few other guys that go by that nickname as well but the website is called lobsterguy.com um and we ship we ship it kind of evolved uh from getting into fishing and fishing all the time and being away from my family. Um, we actually shipped lobsters back in the early nineties for a friend of mine on the West coast. We shipped him some lobsters and some tuna and, uh, and it was such a huge success that his friends started calling and their friends started calling. And we're like, you know, Hey, maybe we're onto something. And, and we kept it tight. We kept it small. It was just lobsters at first. And then we get into, uh, shipping clam bakes and, and shipping lobster tails and, and chowders. And then we developed 
you know, a whole line of seafood appetizers. I mean, we have we have stuffies, what they're known in New England as stuffy stuffed clams that that we make ourselves that are really they're phenomenal. Um, they've got coral hogs and clams and and vegetables and a and a bread stuffing. Uh, we make lobster cakes out of fresh lobster meat, and uh, you know everything. Our reviews are about ninety eight percent positive, and and the way we look at it is. We want everybody to have a great experience. You know, and my, my name is on every box. My name is on every package. So every everything we do is first rate. And and I have a simple policy here and I'm I'm the most finicky six foot one, two hundred and fifty pound guy you've ever met. I am the most finicky eater. And if I won't eat it and I don't like it, then I'm not gonna sell it. And if it's not fresh, I'm not gonna sell it. And if I'm not gonna take it home and feed it to my family, then I'm not gonna sell it. And it's worked. You know, freshness and quality. I mean, the oysters we, we ship, uh, the clam bakes, we ship clam bakes in their own cooking tin. And uh, all you basically do is add water. And it's a, it's like sitting at the coast. You add, add water to it. It's got clams and lobsters and corn in the cob, uh, sausage wrapped in flounder, which is an old New England staple, and sweet potatoes, red potatoes. And literally all you do is add water and you steam it on either the stove or, or the grill top. And, and, and we sell a ton of those. The, and the feedback on them is phenomenal. And actually, my dad came up with the idea in the late 60s of putting them in tins, these clam bakes in tins. And, and, and so people people didn't have to go to the beach and dig a pit or dig a, dig a hole in their backyard and burn the wood and put the seaweed on it. And, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it, it, it runs a close second, I'll tell you. Um, but, yeah, you can find us online at lobsterguide.com and, um, you know, I encourage people to look at the reviews and look around the site. And if you have any questions, you can call. And my daughter Casey works in the office. Um, most of my kids, at one point or another, growing up, have worked with me in the business. And uh, I must say that the staff at the at the shipping building is, um, you know, I love each and every one of them. They do such a great job, and they'll they'll make you feel at home. They'll answer any questions you have. It doesn't matter what it is, and they'll, we'll do our best to accommodate you on anything that you need. Yeah, that sounds great, and I'll definitely make sure that links get put in the description for for all of that. But you know, for me personally, I'm I'm based out of Utah, so I'm landlocked, and I love seafood. So I know I'm I'm definitely going to be ordering one of those clam bakes. That sounds absolutely amazing. They're really, I mean, you know, you sit down like the clam bakes for two is really popular. It's a dinner for two. You know, comes with a lobster, and like I said, the fish wrapped in sausage and and the clams and all the vegetables, and you basically steam it and just you dump that thing out on the table or you put it in serving bowls and have at it. But most people have leftovers the next day, you know, which is, it, it's, it's, it's a great concept and it's, it's easy. It's a great, it's a, it's a, what we call wicked up here. We use the word wicked a lot up here in New England, wicked. Uh, it's a wicked, great gift idea. You know, people love it, especially around the holidays. It's, it's really, really popular. Um, but yeah. Um, you know, check out our reviews, you know, I, I think, I think people would be pleased and, you know, we, we, we kind of live off our reviews from our customers and, and, and it's great. I mean, people take the time to send us pictures and, and comment and, and pass us on. And, and, uh, that's what we're here for. You know, like I said, we want you to have a great experience. I'm, I'm not here for the next six months to throw lobsters in a box and get on with my life and do something else. I mean, this is what we do for a living, and, and this is how we handle them. And we we put a lot of pride in it. Um, each each order we send to to this day, when we first started, James gets a handwritten thank you card put in it. I mean, it's handwritten by someone in the office. It's not computer typed. Um, you now that each order comes with cooking directions and a and a little brochure and some helpful hints and stuff like that. But, you know, we try to set ourselves apart by, by just doing it right with quality, you know, and, and it, it's a big purchase. It's not, it's not like you're going online to, you know, to buy uh, ballpoint pens or, or wrapping paper or, or something. And you can get just about anything online now, you know, that as well as I do, but you know, right. we want it to be a great experience for you. That's, that's what we have to, we want you to come back. We want you to say, Hey, that was outstanding. That was fabulous. And, and we want you to come back. We want you to be assured at it. You know, everything's delivered overnight. You know, we pack everything the day before, that day before. So, if, for example, if you watch something on a Thursday, that gets packed Wednesday afternoon. Um, there's four or five people that pack. You know, that's what they do. And 
they work with me here little lobsters all day and and you know they're, they're quality conscious and they put a lot of pride into it and they initial each box too. whoever packs that box they sign it you know um and they're proud to do so and you know it gets packed gets shipped then in most cases it's to your house by noon the next day yeah and that's that's incredible i know from from this conversation from talking with you you know your history your your passion your pride it, it really it speaks to the the quality of the products that you sign off on that you ship because you know you're not here just to make a quick buck you you know the business you've grown up in the business and and obviously that's going to translate into someone that knows what they're doing and and they can deliver a great a great product absolutely you know a lot of the stuff we make and offer and, and we've evolved and expanded over the last few years you know and when i started shipping <laughs> when i first started shipping lobsters you know online in the in the mid 90s and we were one of the first companies to do so i mean i really couldn't handle a keyboard on a computer i had my daughter say you know, i had to say to her what what's email what's what's <laughs> this what's how do i do that i mean and then I started just closing my eyes and shaking my head. And I said, you know, when they were having typing classes in school, I should have been paying attention. But now I had to be out on the baseball field doing something different. I didn't pay attention. So <laughs> I still, I still, I peck, I peck now with two fingers and a thumb. So I've, I've come a long way. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's great. It's great to get the feedback from people and, I mean, we shipped we shipped some stuff the other day for a for a gentleman uh, for his hundredth birthday, World War II veteran, and and we shipped some stuff and we we upgraded his lobster size and he was so thrilled. Uh, we got pictures and a phone call and you know you forget that older folks just don't eat like young people do anymore, you know. And he 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 got three days out of it. He was <laughs> he was thrilled, you know. But a lot of that mean it means a lot to us that people take the time and give us the feedback, you know, and. Not everything goes perfect. I mean, there's always, we shoot for a hundred percent every day. We shoot for a hundred percent every, every day, you know, but sometimes there are little issues that pop up. That's life and that's business, but standing up and making them right. That's important too. That's really important. It says a lot that you care about the customer and, and you, you're willing to do the right thing. So, you know, you take that into all, all into account, then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a simple it's a simple model to follow, but that's what we try to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I've really appreciated your time today and, and getting to talk with you, learn more of your story, and and uh, I, I appreciate that. No, glad to. Glad to. I, you know, I, I, I was listening to a couple of your, your podcasts there back about, uh, it was one on ice cream I was listening to down in Philadelphia there, Bassett's. Yeah. On Bat yeah. And that was really cool. That was that was really cool to, to hear. You know, I mean, you know, in this time and age, I, I think it's a great thing that you're doing as you're bringing back some of the history of, you know, not only with me, but I mean, I learned a lot about that. And I was listening to one that was really cool on the maple syrup um, a while back. I listened to Betsy tell you about the at, uh, sugar bush. That's what it was. Yeah. Sugar bush farms. And that's, you know, maple syrup up here in New England. That's a big thing, you know, and I don't I don't know if people in Utah get to sample stuff like that but you know there's so much good stuff that comes out of this area out of new england that you can't get anywhere else and you know with with the availability of overnight shipping now on the internet i mean a lot of it's only a click away you know but um no i'm, I'm glad i got to do it with you it's, it's been an honor um i wish you nothing but not, nothing but the best with the toasty kettle man it's a great idea yeah hey thank you i appreciate it So special thanks to Captain Tim for taking the time and coming on the show today. And now I'm going to step into the kitchen. And this is the part of the show where I would normally go into uh, a vintage recipe that I found in one of the cookbooks. But instead of doing that, I'm going to go into the kitchen and uh, eat one of Captain Tim's clam bakes. From talking with him and hearing him describe the clam bake and everything that's in it, it, it really struck a chord with me. And I knew I had to get one. Now, the whole reason behind this episode and the interview with Captain Tim was 
from what I had read in a cookbook from 1884 from Mrs. Lincoln's Boston cookbook. And in that cookbook, she describes what a clam bake is. So I want you to close your eyes for a minute and just get transported back in time to the 1800s to the beach and uh, listen to her describe what a clam bake is. An impromptu clam bake may be had at any time at low tide along the coast where clams are found. If you wish to have genuine fun and to know what an appetite one can have for the bivalves, make up a pleasant party and dig for the clams yourselves. A short, thick dress, shade hat, rubber boots, or better still, no boots at all, if you can bring your mind to the comfort of bare feet. A small garden trowel, a fork, and a basket, and you are ready. Let those who are not digging gather a large pile of driftwood and seaweed, always to be found along the shore. Select a dozen or more large stones, and of them make a level floor. Pile the driftwood upon them and make a good, brisk fire to heat the stones thoroughly. When hot enough to crackle as you sprinkle water upon them, brush off the embers, letting them fall between the stones. Put a thin layer of seaweed on the hot stones to keep the lower clams from burning. Rinse the clams in salt water by plunging the basket which contains them in the briny pools nearby. Pile them over the hot stones, heaping them high in the center. Cover with a thick layer of seaweed and a piece of old canvas, blanket, carpet, or dry leaves to keep in the steam. The time for baking will depend upon the size and quality of the clams. Peep in occasionally at those around the edge. When the shells are open, the clams are done. They are delicious eaten from the shell with no other sauce than their own briny sweetness. Melted butter, pepper, and vinegar should be ready for those who wish them. Then all may fall too. Fingers must be used. A Rhode Islander would laugh at anyone trying to use a knife and fork. Pull off the thin skin, take them by the black end, dip them in the prepared butter, and bite off close to the end. If you swallow them whole, they will not hurt you. Add a genuine Rhode Island clam bake, bluefish, lobsters, crabs, sweet potatoes, and ears of sweet corn in the gauzy husks are baked with the clams. The clam steam gives them a delicious flavor. Brown bread is served with the clams, and watermelon for dessert completes the feast. Now, when it comes to that passage from that cookbook, it really does transport me back in time to a very simple day at the beach where everyone's out having fun playing in the water. And, oh, by the way, we're going to dig up our own dinner. And uh, it's just such a simple menu, simple ingredients. But when you bring them all together, it was a really good feast. Now, with the clam bakes that that Captain Tim puts together, it's right by that description. There's clams, lobster, sweet potatoes, red potatoes, corn, and onions, and then, of course, flounder wrap sausage, which is just absolutely fantastic. So you might be thinking, well, I don't have a lot of experience cooking seafood, and it sounds too hard. I don't want to spend a lot of money on these great ingredients on lobster and then blow it. Well, that's where Captain Tim will come to the rescue. Their organization, their company, they, they ship it all packed together in a tin. So all you have to do is pull it out of the cooler that it comes in and add water and put it on the stove. That's it. And uh, when I got my box in the mail, I was so excited. One thing about me is I absolutely love seafood. And I have a lot of family members that absolutely love seafood. So this clam bake feeds two people. And my brother was the lucky one that was able to come and enjoy the feast with me. And we both just raved about the fresh seafood that was in there. You could tell it was a high quality. The, the lobsters were absolutely amazing. The meat was firm and sweet and tasty. And then, of course, the clams really added that briny sweetness that Mrs. Lincoln talks about in the cookbook. The other surprising thing, for me personally, I'm not a huge fan of sweet potatoes. 
But when you had those sweet potatoes in there boiling in that broth that was formed from the clams and the lobsters, it really took everything in there, all the vegetables, to the next level, including the sweet potatoes. And I actually went back for more sweet potatoes. It was really good. The other thing that me and my brother both raved about that was totally unique that I've never experienced before was the flounder wrap sausage. I absolutely love sausage and I love fish and you wrap them all together and it was a surprisingly tasty bit of food. You had the richness from the sausage, but you had a light flaky texture and flavor that came from the flounder and it really tied everything together. Now, I'm also landlocked. I live in Utah and in Utah, you don't have a lot of really good seafood options. And I didn't really know that the seafood that I had access to here in Utah was quite mediocre. I would always, when I wanted seafood, I'd go to the local chain seafood restaurant and I would load up on my various seafood favorites. And then you go somewhere like New England and you get to experience what good seafood is. And uh, when you've experienced good seafood and you can tell the difference and then put it all together when Captain Tim sent me that package, it really stood out to me. And I can, I can tell that what he sent was good quality seafood. And it was just so refreshing to have good seafood out here in Utah for once. It just really was awesome. And even better, I didn't have to get dressed up and go to a restaurant. I could just enjoy it at home. So really... Special thanks to Captain Tim. I'm definitely going to be ordering more stuff from him in the future because it's just absolutely spectacular. He makes the process easy and painless. It's packaged with care, like he says, and uh, they really know what they're doing. I would absolutely want to buy lobster from a guy who's grown up in the industry and has a lot of passion about what he does than uh, just buying something that was slapped on a plate down at the local chain. My brother and I are still raving about the mill, and we would definitely recommend it to anyone else. Well, that's everything we have for this week. Uh, There are links in the description to Captain Tim's website, to the Lobster Guy, and uh, make sure you check them out. Make sure you order some stuff. It's really great food, and uh, you won't be sorry. If you like what you heard, again, tell someone that you know about the show and uh, do what you can to spread the word and and let people know what you're listening to let them know what you're learning until next week (laughs) 